podcast. I'm Keith, one of your hosts. Today, Aaron, Tim, and I talk about the Netflix documentary Murder to Mercy. This doc chronicles the Centoya Brown story, which focuses on Brown, who at the age of 16 was a victim of sex trafficking and incarcerated for murder. On this episode, we get into a multitude of topics ranging from generational wounds to the unfairness of the criminal justice system towards minors. Um, Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode and you want to continue to rock with us, um, do please feel free to um, review this episode and also follow us on social media at the Low Key Pod. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And once again, thanks for joining us and enjoy. So yeah, the, the murder to, to mercy, the Centoya Brown story documentary that just is it's been out on Netflix. I think it's been out since since April or something. But we're just now getting to it. But I thought it'd be an interesting story to talk about just because I, it caught my attention because I remember this case, but I don't I don't remember like too much of the details of like what was going on because I I think I was pretty young around the time. I think I was a teenager at this time. Let, let me let me put some, you know, the timeline together a little bit on that at least, um, yeah. at least as far as you and I are involved, because this happened in the fall of 2014. So we would have been seniors in high school in Memphis at the time, and this happened in Nashville. Oh, okay. So, so at, I at least statewide, it was. <laughs> yeah, but statewide, it was definitely something that people were talking about, 100. percent Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So. So, so yeah, I remember it happening, and then when I saw this documentary pop up, I was like, whoa, I, you know, just wanted to, you know, get some more information about what happened, because I, I feel like what I always remembered, and what I thought happened, in my brain, I don't know where I got this from, I thought that she was being raped by her stepfather, and she murdered her stepfather, I don't know where I get this story from. See, initially, when I was trying to recall the story, I thought it was the person who um, had been acting as um, her trafficker who Mm. um, she had murdered. It's weird because, like, you know, it's like, you know, you hear a story, then you hear second hand, you hear third hand, fourth hand, and then, like, details kind of get muddled. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time it came back around uh, with the hashtag free uh, Centoya Brown, um, and, and, you know, I got a chance to revisit the details. You know, by that time, you know, it had been kind of cleared up. You had a, a lot of people uh, lending their support um, as, as a collective, but also a lot of celebrity attention, uh, which helped eventually bring clemency from uh, Governor Bill Haslam, who uh, was about to leave office. Um, last year so mm-hmm. so you guys both yeah. grew up in tennessee how present was this case i mean i obviously it wasn't like day in day out like the oj simpson case was for me in california um where you knew every detail of everybody's name but like how much did it come up it would come up so i went to school uh in knoxville um so it is it well excuse me let me backtrack i went to to school in memphis you know in a lot of my formative years but i went to college in at ut knox right um you would hear it come up uh from a statewide perspective because it's not like you know in as the documentary lays out her case and and um so decide whether or not for example it, it stays in juvenile court or adult court like those things are you know i, I think i feel like we're like all over the place like there's I, I think because like I don't have the grounding of what it's actually about, I feel like we're just kind of bouncing around a lot. Um, can we go like really straightforward about just like starting from just like why this, why we're talking about this? That's a great point. Yeah. Sorry, because like, yeah, yeah. you guys have history with it, and I don't really know the case at all. So it's sort of, and then we just gave two versions of what we thought it was, but we never said what it actually is. Okay. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I'm yeah, just thinking. If I, like as an outsider, I'm already kind of lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are we starting out from the top, or are we just gonna keep going? No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's keep going. I, I think yeah. what Tim is saying, like, let, let's lay out what happened in the case, and and you know, um, and like why we why we decided. I mean, like like I said, I decided it that we you know this would be an interesting thing to talk about because of. 
for one, I even though being from Tennessee, there was so much that I did not know about the case. And the uh, well, okay, like of, let's just lay out like what happened. So yeah. in, in the in, in filling any gaps that I'm leaving out, I'm gonna try to just do a really quick synopsis. So, uh, Centoya Brown, is, you know, uh, was a young woman uh, who at 16, well, I guess teenager, I should say, at 16, who um, decided to run away from home. Uh, she uh, had a mother who uh, decided to put her for adoption, um, and um, she when she, was very, when she was very young, like when, when, when she, was, she when she was like one, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, she had run into some trouble. Um, we'll, we'll get into details on on that later. Um, and when she ran away, she ended up running into a guy named Cut. Cut um, was a guy she had some kind of involvement with. Eventually. Um, you know, it turns out that he was trafficking her to, you know, um, be a prostitute, um, underage prostitute. And, you know, he encouraged her to go and make some money um, because, you know, he felt like she wasn't pulling, you know, um, pulling, you know, enough in to, to um, be treated well, whatever. So she goes out um, in East Nashville, uh, meets a guy who takes her to his home. Um, he you know, brags about how important he is, the fact he's a real estate agent, uh, former Army guy, um, has all these guns in the home. She begins to get nervous about how he's acting. Um, They lay in the bed together. She feels like um, he's acting a little strange. He makes some sudden movement, and um, she grabs one of the guns nearby the bed and kills him. Um, That's her version of the story. Um, And so she also, like, takes like his truck and some other things the cops show up um and put her in 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 prison of course um she goes to trial and um says it was self-defense the uh, prosecutor says that's not the case she ends up um going to jail um for life in in tennessee as a juvenile for certain crimes there's like a minimum of 51 years uh, for certain things so that's kind of you know, where her, her, you know, um, story really, um, became something that people were trying to pay a little more attention to just seeing how this took place. Um, she eventually was given clemency by the governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam, former governor at this point in 2019. And that kind of is the very quick synopsis of what took place. Mm. So Keith, why did you want to talk about this one? We we said last week we were gonna do something fun. We say that every week. <laughs> this week we did a story about a sixteen year old girl who was sex trafficked and killed somebody she said in self defense. This is like one of the grimmest, saddest stories I've ever heard. Um, but obviously it's important. So what what made you wanna focus on this one? I think one of the first things that caught my attention was in the trailer. Too, when they had said, um, you know, she was considered to be a prostitute in the time that she was convicted. But if the same thing happened now, she would consider to be a, um, what, what, you know, someone that would was sexually a victim, abused, of sex a victim uh, yeah, of sex, sexual trafficking and stuff. And so, um, I've I've always thought it was is interesting. I don't know that in itself caught my attention, but just interesting how there are certain things like from from once one point in time and another point in time which is the same thing but takes on a different meaning depending on the change of our culture yeah and that by itself caught my attention and then like i said i really didn't know too much about the specifics of the case you know and then now that i watched it it's kind of it's one of those things where it's like I feel like I have certain bias and like what I actually believe happened. I mean, at the end of the day, she's, she's out of prison now, you know, she served her time, but I don't know if I, where I lean now is if, if this was first degree or second degree murder. Yeah. It's hard to call the case for first degree for me. Cause like it, it like literally if it's premeditated, you'd have to say, she got in the car with the guy to go home with him with the intent of doing that. Now, the thing is, we don't have anything from a dead person, obviously, saying about, like, because she said, okay, it was his suggestion to go to the hotel. There's no way to prove any of that, right? Right, and, right. 
as far as we know, and as far as what she says is that's the first time she gone to somebody's home with them, and, and she's an underage girl and all that, right? Um, there's just not a lot of things that we can prove. I mean, in, in the documentary doesn't really go much into the facts of the case outside of consistently mentioning that the uh, person who was killed, um, his hands are clasped and his back is to her and, and he was shot in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's kind of a narrative that what she did was completely in self-defense and that because she was a victim of sex trafficking, anything she did was in self-defense. And I think that's a little weird. I mean, is it is possible for someone who has been sex trafficked to commit a crime while being sex trafficked? At the same time, I mean, my sympathy is entirely with her um, because she's 16 and she's picked up by a guy who's 43 when she's being pimped out by another older guy who's in his 20s. Um, she's in a horrible situation. And I do think she's guilty of something, but I definitely don't think she's guilty of something that should put her in prison for 51 years. And the thing that I wish this documentary had done more is focus more on that law and what a systemically bad law that is um, in your guys' home state (laughs) of Tennessee. um, To put minors away for 51 years just seems crazy to me, even if it was a a cold-blooded murder. Um, to just say that something somebody did at the age of 16 should just get them locked up forever. I wish the documentary had gone into that a little bit more. Yeah, the documentary is very much focused on it. it, it it's taking like documentaries always have like different styles. I'm not like a documentary expert by any means, but this one really struck me in a way where you know you don't get a lot of time. It, it happens more towards the end than it does at the beginning. I think there are reasons for that that we'll get to at the end of this uh, episode. But you don't really get a lot of interviews with people until near the end. Most of it's just like, almost like you're, you're a voyeur. Like you're a fly on the wall watching things happen. Right. Um, like whoever's taking the footage, you're just seeing them like show you things take place. And then there's like, a they give you a timeline of how old she is and how long she's been incarcerated and things like that. But it, it's the the voice of the documentary. Like it, it's almost like it's trying not to touch certain things all the time. It's super duper. And Toya's uh, mother is a white woman who is not from a privileged class in Tennessee. Her father, they don't mention him at all. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe that her father's probably black. Um, and they don't mention her father's side at all, um, which I think is a little weird. Um, mm-hmm. And something else that's actually super interesting is just kind of like the lack of uh, black people in this documentary. <laughs> I thought about that, too. It, it really weird. stands out in, in certain ways. Um, yeah. T- can you talk about that more? I mean, her, her adopted mother is black who adopts her at a very young age. Um <laughs> But one of the complaints I've seen about the documentary is that the first half does have Santoya Brown's point of view a lot, and then the second half is a lot of white people. Um, and, you know, partly that's because her lawyers are white people and the prosecutors are white people. I, you know, because the the documentary does, I do think, like, it, it's really trying this really hard balance. And like, I think there's some things that execute really well. Um, and, and it's trying to make to not make a judgment call in any way where people feel like it's trying to lean politically left or right on anything. Like, they're really trying to balance that. I don't really know why it's doing that, but it's really, really... Um, you you can feel the weight of it trying to be moderate the entire time and play in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do really feel like the way that they place emphasis and really give voice to... Um, her, her mother's family is very important and um, just the way they talked about the trauma that, that each generation of women went through having been raped um, and, and the kind of that cycle I thought and, that was really strong The biolog- her biological mother is a victim of sexual abuse her grandmother is a victim of sexual abuse It's there's also a history of alcoholism um, 
I think it did a really good job of showing how the deck is stacked against her from the beginning. But, but, here's where it gets weird. Because I, I, I really want to say this in the most respectful way possible, but I'm, you know, so we're not sitting here listening to me trying to stumble through words for a whole minute. I'm just going to say it outright. There's so many moments when Centoya's adopted mother's, um, her parentage is just like, it's just not even considered as helpful. Mm. Or like, there are these moments where you hear the lawyers talking and they say things like, she never had a chance from the time she was born. And mm. it's like, well, she did have a woman who was black who took care of her for 13 years before, think, well, it's going to be for 14, 14 and a half years, something like that, yeah. before things like went super awry. And she did say that, you know, there were times, the adopted mother said there were times where Centoya wasn't particularly listening. But I'm telling you, like, that, Centoya, when she was 16, was an incredibly poised and smart young woman. Yeah. And it, surprisingly so. Like, I, I guess based off how they were talking about her, like, almost like, because at one point they, they tried to say she was damn near, like, mentally retarded. See, that's what I was about to get to. The the the, the way, because the, they mentioned like uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Or like I feel like I feel like I'm leaving a yeah. word out there. It's, it's disorder or something. But yeah. fetal alcohol, some I don't whatever. Yeah. FASD. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, so they mentioned that her mother drank while Centoya was in the womb. Um, and a this lot, had, like tall bottles of vodka. Like yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they said that this impacted her her um, ability, a cognitive ability to like you know control impulses. Now, that's a thing that's real, but you know the cameras on her when they're in court talking about about this, and you can see her like trying to keep it together, and like, and I mean like you know look, I mean they're talking about a diagnosis of you as a person and your inability to control yourself. Part of that's just being young too. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something with that period, with like this being a real, real thing for her and in her disorder. But they kept talking about her brain, like, because they, they, at one point they did literally say, because again, they're trying to make the case for her to get out of, of jail, right? Yeah, her defense is making the case that she has some genetic limitations from the very beginning that make it impossible for her to make the right decision. Her, her defense is making the case. Like, after she's been convicted and they're trying to, like, do something to get out, out of, out of uh, jail, they say that she, um, has the capacity of like a person who is mentally impaired and mm-hmm. again as a defense you got to make your case whatever that is um but there's a a point it, i'm like that that you know it just feels so dismissive of what happened after she was adopted right and, it's, and to the woman who, who took care of her yeah and to go back to your point like she did seem to be intelligent like I mean, oh, she's intelligent. Yeah, very intelligent. Like, more, much more articulate than I would have been and much more poised than I would have been at that age, especially right. under it, that kind of duress. It was kind of like, it was, and that, that also kind of made me question a lot of things, too. Like, mm-hmm. is, is it that she's just this way? Or did you kind of, or have you been in, like, similar situations, I guess, in a sense, right? Because, like, it, shit, if I stole... If I got pulled over by the police for damn near anything, I'm I was sweating bullets at sixteen, you know. So whereas her, she 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 articulated well, like even better than me at shit thirty three, goddamn. So so I'm sitting there thinking like, damn, like this girl got some sense. Like how did she? Like I, of course she had been manipulated, you know, by by other people to you know become a prostitute and stuff like that. But it was something about how she carried herself that she that made you like she she knows more than what what they're trying to make us think, you know. It it was crazy. It was really curious. I didn't I didn't I, I didn't understand some of the ways that they were positioning her mental facilities. It was a little strange. I didn't like. I don't, I don't know. As a defense, I felt like that was a weird way to, to place things where it's like almost like she's incapable of understanding certain things. Now, it was kind of un- funny I, I that res- you see I the res- Miranda rights thing. 
I respectively hate this whole conversation. I mean, and the reason why, (laughs) (laughs) the reason why is like, I don't, we're kind of talking about like guilt and innocence and things like that. And I don't think that's the most interesting thing about this documentary. Like, I think it went through, I think it went through the courts. Um, I think it's more interesting to me that the entire process, the entire court system is, is flawed. Um, and to me, the most the most flawed part is the systemic decision to put people away for 51 years. Uh, you know, how guilty is she? Is she guilty? Um, how mitigating is it that she's being sex trafficked and is a victim at the same time she's a um, a victimizer in the sense that she killed someone? Um, that's all a debate. But the other part of her defense trotting out all the evidence that she has fetal alcohol syndrome and that she's, you know, impaired by her lineage and all this stuff with her with her mother and her grandmother defense lawyers just always say that stuff i mean that's their job yeah like, yeah so it kind of really felt like yeah and i mean you know during the sentencing during the crime phase you say or during the guilt phase you say this person didn't do it and then during the sentencing phase you say oh well they never had a chance anyway because you know they were dropped as a baby and um you know everything was against them yeah they themselves were molested from the age of two. Every defendant tries to make the case that they had the deck stocked against them as much as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're often right. Um, so just for me, like to reiterate, you know, how guilty is she? What is she guilty of? I care more about the interesting issues around the documentary itself and, um, and what it tells us about what the documentary reveals about sentencing in Tennessee and nationwide mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> so let, let me ask you a question about that. Cause you've been somebody who's, you know, um, you know, had to cover as a journalist trials and, and how they take place and, you know, fairness and unfairness and things like that. Um, what did you think of just the, the appeal process? Like, I mean, the one thing is kind of unclear to me and, and they do bring up, um, as part of some of the, I guess, sentencing reform in, in the state of Tennessee is how to treat minors. I mean, you know, do you think that, you know, the, the case of Centoya Brown may have an impact for other people down the road who, you know, whether it's in the state of Tennessee or elsewhere, um, do you think this may have an impact on how people view sentencing and, and um, issues for people who um, are adolescents who are, are under this sort of duress? I don't know. It made me really more opposed than I already was to mandatory minimums. I mean, you see so many mandatory minimums that get people locked up for years over drug offenses, for instance. Um, And I think mandatory minimums for minors are particularly crazy because, you know, these are people we don't trust enough to vote or buy alcohol, but we think that they can, we think that they're capable of making a decision that should affect their entire life. I mean, there should be some penalty if you kill someone. There should be a serious penalty, but there should also be, and I'm sorry to be like bleeding heart liberal, but something went wrong when a minor killed somebody. It was really interesting seeing how the prosecutor positioned the victim of the murder. Obviously, this is terrible, terrible this happened, but it's like this was not an upstanding individual. Um yeah, the two the two things I thought in this documentary, like there's two big issues that they have to fix. One is the way that men in general treat women in general, right? Which is means you basically have to fix half of the people in the world, mm-hmm. or get half of the people in the world to get their heads on straight. And the other part is the maybe easier to fix thing of how we hand out criminal sentences, which that's the thing that really just was like breaking my heart all through this documentary was the 51 years I thought was just bananas. And I I appreciated what they did with explaining the cyclical problems in her family and how hard it is to break a cycle like that. Um, like alcoholism, like sexual abuse. Um, but I thought they kind of fell down on the, on the societal part of it that we all have. Because I feel like it, the, the the documentary's really scared to offend anybody. Yeah, it's weird. It, it is like a very down-the-middle journalistic documentary um, in terms of not taking a side, in terms of not advocating. 
And I think some of the critics are uncomfortable of that. The criticisms that I read where it's like, why isn't she telling her own story um, throughout? And I don't know. Personally, I like, I, I appreciated that the documentary was so by the book and so straightforward because I thought they did a good job of showing the things that they set out to show. I just wish they'd gone deeper. It, but all... that's really rare to, to see that. I, I think that's why people are kind of adverse to that perspective, that, that approach to documentary. Let me ask y'all a question, too. So do y'all think um, that there's ever a situation where a minor should be sentenced to life? I mean, sure. I can come up with some, but, like, you know, I mean, <laughs> typically in these things, we're not talking about kids who just do random acts of violence and there aren't like some not even necessarily mitigating circumstances but some things that like once you take into account you're like oh okay well like I can see how this happened not that it makes it fine but like you know it's very rare children have I mean, like, when you talk about, like, lifetime, you're talking, literally talking about murder most of the time for kids. Kids don't get yeah. lifetime, and most people don't even get lifetime sentences for things that don't include um, some version of premeditated violence. That's yeah. pretty rare. So, yeah, I mean, I, there are 100% circumstances where that could happen, um, but they're going to be far and away, um, you know, things that are uncommon. Yeah, kind of like, because what that made me think about when you were even saying that, like what we were talking about this is, made me think of, um, how was this boy? Lee Boy Malvo, the DC oh, yeah. sniper. I, I don't remember that story. And, and, and some some uh, listeners might not. Could you kind of just give a quick um, synopsis? So, um, Lee Boy Malvo, he was known as the DC sniper. And, um, oh, okay. Yep, all right. And him all alongside right. Um, John Allen Muhammad, who was a 41-year-old, and at I the time... I still need to watch Blue Caprice, by the way, which is about that story, the uh, Blue Caprice. Yeah, which the is movie Blue Caprice. Too. Yeah, and they yeah. drove around in the Blue Caprice at the time Lee Boy Malvo was 17, and he was um, pretty much just sniping people at random from the trunk of a Blue Caprice. Hey, real quick, can I also just say real fast before you finish the story, black people were shocked that they were black. Man, were we? <laughs> that was like the most non-black thing ever. And it, it, you know, like, the DC sniper was The fucked up story is when I worked at the AP, because I was little listen to hip hop guy. Um, at one point, they said they sent a note that said, "I will do this, now I'll do this." Word is bond, and all these people were like, "Word is bond? What a strange turn of events!" <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, no, that's not that uncommon a phrase. Like, you should listen to like any brand newbian song or." I'm like, that sounds like five percenters to me. Right. So I <laughs> Oh no. Were you on were you on the trail? <laughs> I was I was yeah, like yeah, call, I, was. I called I called the five percenters in New York and I was like like I wrote like a really honestly article I don't feel good about where I was like, just so everybody knows, like this is five percenter language and I'm not saying it's five percenters, but <laughs> it's somebody who knows about five percenters. Look, he, I'm sorry, that's hilarious. He was on some 5G. And, and then you turned out to be correct. Yeah, I was going to say, he definitely was on that type shit, though. I, like 5% or adjacent. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... It, it, there was a problem in the newsroom that I was the person who pointed that out. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, yeah, I could definitely see it. How <laughs> dare you? Like, I would have said this shit, too, and I would have went home like, like Tim might have a point. <laughs> like people don't say this. Well, what was Dang. cool though is that like another another white dude who like studied a lot of religion was like, "Hey, like you can't, you don't want to paint all five percenters as bad." And I was like, "Oh no, I agree, I totally agree." And he's like, "But this article, like, you got to write this really carefully." And I was like, "Yeah, you're right. Like, I like if I could go back, I think I might have just shut the fuck up." <laughs> hey, but you, uh, I but, mean, but, you, but, you, but, you hey, was hey, right. Hey. You right in a way. Truth teller to Tim right here. <laughs> he has like some foresight like, about this shit. I, I saw that news. I was like, uh, <laughs> well, it's I, like that Chris Rock joke where he's like, "Oh, please don't let him turn out to be a black guy." Yes, yes, exactly. That's you know, what we all were thinking. If you, like, if you guys, um, I know this this is off subject, but we are kind of talking about the DC sniper now. But if any of y'all <laughs> want to check out a good podcast on the DC sniper, there is one um, called DC. 
um, Sniper Monster. It's um pretty it's, much. It's produced. called DC Sniper Monster. Well, it's called Monster the DC Sniper. Let me. Okay. Let me, I'm saying. Oh, wait, the monster. The monster podcast is coming DC Sniper now. Yeah, they got a oh, whole series. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's already finished, so you can just listen to it all the way, like bench. Hey man, and, and is it the same host as normal? Uh, no, nah, it's it's not Payne Lindsay, but he's he's producing it though. It's somebody. Payne, Payne Lindsay is awesome. I love Payne Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. But um, but but that was that made me think about that because because even in that case, like he did what he did was heinous. He we oh, murdered over seventeen people. What was his conviction or, or or sentencing? I should say. What did they decide? I think he got just straight up life, life. But I think he he oh, yeah, earned earned that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he worked hard and and um. She should not be getting. Centoya should not Muhammad be getting the same was, sentencing as as him. Is is right. the point? Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much what I'm saying. Like, like, but at the but at the end of the day, it can also be argued that in in Lee Malvo's case, he he didn't have a chance. He was abused. Um, Muhammad manipulated him, and he manipulated him for years. Like that that shit was crazy. Like straight up indoctrination and stuff. Have you watched Blue Caprice yet? I, I no, nah, I've seen the trailer for it, but I I I think I listened to so much stuff on it. But I said I told myself I'm gonna take some time and, and watch it though. I keep saying I'm gonna watch it. It was on Hulu for a while. I hope it's still there. I, I really want to watch that right, film. Right. I I feel like it's it's probably an important watch, and it, you know, even if it's good, I, I don't feel like it get critical acclaim because of its subject matter. It's just kind of one of those yeah, things. It's, you know? it's very um yeah. It was, that was some crazy shit, but it. I but, tell you, black people were like, "Yeah, you serious?" Yeah, really, really. Well, it definitely, it definitely seemed like a white dude type of crime. It's it like, did. Yeah. Oh, we we were like, "This shit it ain't us," and they were like, "It's us." Oh shit! Have you kidding me? And then it's with like, a it, sniper rifle. You can tell we feel when there's a school shooter. We're like, oh, I mean, well, okay, but, but hold, hold up, Tim. Like, all right, <laughs> you you gotta admit though, when when that happens, you you're like, ah, shit, it's us. Every time, every school shooter, every single one, it's like, which, like, white incel is this? Yeah, yeah it, it's pretty ridiculous. Like, the thing that's actually, so, you know, this is a great thing to bring up, actually. And that sounds really terrible the way I just put it. But here's yeah, the thing. Um, but if, if you notice, women, there aren't, like, it's really rare. I can't think of, like, offhand. It, can you guys think of a famous woman serial killer. The the I know most they famous said, one I, is Eileen Wernos, who was a sex worker who, uh, you know, killed at least one John who, I mean, so apparently if you see Monster, I don't know if you see Monster, but the way yeah. she tells it, no, no, yeah, it. it's good. The way she tells it, she started off killing because somebody tried to assault her. And I mean... <laughs> During this movie, I kept thinking, like, if somebody sexually assaults you when you're doing sex work, I think you should be allowed to shoot them. And then I was like, well, how would they actually put that into law? Because you have to prove it every single time. But I don't know. I felt a lot of sympathy for her. For, I felt sympathy for her just on the face of there's a 43-year-old man who picks up a child with the intent of taking her back to his house and having sex with her. Right. She defends herself. She over-defends herself by killing him, but I don't feel a ton of sympathy for this dude but as, so, so a, you, as someone who's like his age who the, the idea of like oh man going to like yeah. a high school it, like it's come on what well, i'm really glad you brought that up you, you brought it all the way home before i could even get there which is the thing that's super interesting to me actually is in this documentary we have all these people who you know have all these opinions about the case and this and that if you notice the women in her life, they, I mean, they don't begrudge her for her actions. I mean, I, they don't agree with, you know, murdering a person, right? But when you hear, for example, her grandmother talk about um, her rape that led to the pregnancy of Centoya's mother, yeah. she says, you know, that basically she put on makeup and she hid it because that's just what you do. Yeah. And as her mother went through it, you know, well, the, the molestation as a child, she talked about her frustration and her mother not protecting her. And 
when you see them speak about what happened with Centoya or even her adopted mother, you know, her adopted mother doesn't really talk specifically in this documentary about the crime itself outside of saying, like, there's some recorded thing that they had of them talking on the phone and her saying, like, don't say that you executed him or something like that, you know, whatever. But they don't have any judgment on what she did. Because, you know, and I don't know about Centoya's adopted mother, but um, the women in her, in her you know, uh, other women in her family who've experienced that, who we know have experienced it, um, you know, not that it seems like they would want to have done that to the people who assaulted them, but they, it seems like, understand that anger and understand that rage because they have to live with it every day. Like, Centoria's grandmother literally says, like, I mean, there's no, there's no closing that door. It's open every day, you know? Um, and and, and I, I, just, I found that really interesting as a point. I mean, people don't really speak very um, plain about their experiences, and, and I really do appreciate them being able to, to tell their stories in the way that they did because that's just so rare. Um, and, 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 you know, not that they were past it, but they were able to share that so that people would have some some understanding yeah i think you can certainly look at just the fact that she shot the guy and say she is responsible but if you step back and look at all of the circumstances it's the predatory behavior of men that causes this to happen and i know that somebody listening to this might be like oh my gosh like you hate men or whatever obviously i don't but i mean she comes from this generation generation after generation of men horribly sexually abusing women. I mean, I'm sure her grandmother... Yeah, repeatedly. Repeatedly yeah. doing it. And people, people they it, know. Yes. And, and trust, in some mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. And I'm sure her grandmother and mother have, you know, rightly warned her about the dangers posed by really any man. Well, um, well, well so... I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying say, any man... Say, no, no, the, the street, only thing I was going to say I mean, is that that didn't happen only because they weren't around because she had been adopted by that point. Okay, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Mention, but yeah, if, if she knows anything about her family history, she knows that there's a history of that. And then, you know, she has this boyfriend who ends up pimping her out. And then this guy picks her up in his car who's about three times her age. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I understand her view of the world. I understand her view of the world that the men... I'm not saying all men are predatory, of course, but I'm saying that a large number of the men in her life are predatory. Yeah. And did you, you remember when they showed that picture from the psychologist at the very beginning when she's 16, he said, I want you to describe these images to me. And one of them was just like, a, you know, a young girl watching a man and a woman have a conversation and the, and the man touches the woman's chin and they're having a conversation. She's like, oh, he must have hit her and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I was like, geez, like, like that, that's what you got out of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I could see how somebody might get that, but that wouldn't be my first thought, you know, because the psychiatrist is just like, tell me a story. What's happening here? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and I, every story was violent and, and, and just like full of mistrust. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that, too, add to what y'all um, and to Tim's point, the um, it, it really does start with men as a whole getting that getting that under control, you know. Um, as far as like, especially when it comes to violence, there's no reason to be violent towards a woman. And then when it comes to like trafficking, like all these things exist because of men not having control over their sexuality, I feel. Because another thing, so I don't know if I'm playing devil's advocate in saying this, but could it be possible? I don't. I'm not trying to take up for the guy, nothing like that. But you know, I but I I I feel that if a person goes out and they go out and they pick up prostitutes, they may they have something a lot deeper going on with them too. You know, there's a, some type of sickness that comes along with that, and I don't think that. Do you I, mean because of the exploitation um, of a, of a, another human being who you like? You know, paying for sex. Like, what, what, what part of it do you mean? I mean, it could be different things, but I think it could also be connected with like um, some type of, you know, depression or sexual addiction or something like that. And I think that, I mean, not all the time, 
they really know how old these girls are, you know. And I mean, so, at the, at the same time, I don't know if that's gonna necessarily will stop them or whatever. But it so, made me think about like, for example, if you watch uh, it, if you watch pornography, right? Which okay. you know, I struggle with, with like porn addiction, like real bad. Like sometimes, you know, when it gets, it has its ups and downs. And I was thinking about it one day where it's like, I don't know how old these girls are. You know, you never know, really. You you assume they at least 18. And even then, it's kind of like, you know, as a 30-year-old or 40-year-old, it is kind of sick when you think about it. You know, beating off mm-hmm. to, to teenagers, pretty much. But you never really know, you know. And I think our society, yep. it throws so much sex at us. And, and a lot of us have never really, um, I guess you could say, learn how to have relations with women outside of sex. And then some guys get married, they have a whole wife and everything, and they still go back and watch porn or go on the street to go pick up prostitutes. To live and out. SVU will tell you all about that. Right. I mean, I think, I think there's an ethical way to do uh, probably any of this. I mean, I think like... I think like there probably is an ethical version of hiring a prostitute where they're extremely well paid and compensated and everybody agrees and is on the same team, you know, is on the same level um, to the extent that that's possible. And I think that's I some Vegas works like that or not. Vegas, yeah, I think there, there are places in Nevada where that's allowed. Well, I remember a guy told me he, he interviewed a prostitute in, I think it was Amsterdam. And she told him that, like every couple guys, she would just look them up and down and just go no, like just to remind herself and to remind them that she could do that, um, uh, just just to sort of make sure the balance was I'm in charge here, not you. Yeah. So, I think if I think if everybody has, I mean, saying like power, I feel like the word power imbalance gets thrown around a lot, and to the point where sometimes it's meaningless. But I think there's definitely a power imbalance when you know, a much older guy picks up a much younger woman and basically controls her destiny for the night for a hundred dollars. Like that's, that's insane. And it, it's clearly unethical and it's clearly predatory and disgusting. Um, you know, if someone hires a high price quote unquote, the mythical high price call girl who we always see on SVU or whatever and pays $1,500 <laughs> and everybody negotiates everything like, I don't know. I think there's a. I think there's a scenario where that could be ethical. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it's ever ethical to me, like at all. Like because it's just uh, seedy business either way you go for it. Because yeah. these well, women well, are still they're still exploiting themselves. Now, rather rather they agree to it or not or whatever, it's still like they're selling they're selling their bodies, they're selling their souls, you know, for money. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go that deep into. I mean, I feel I mean, like that's, the, that's, the, the main thing is you're you're making a choice about you know what you want to do with your body. Oh no! Like that's why I feel the way I feel about sports. It's all flesh peddling. I knew you were about to go there. <laughs> it's just the only. <laughs> the, but that's not, that's not the same thing. The, the only difference is that is you know it's legal and you know the um. The people that's being exploited, they get compensated. We should do a whole episode to let, let you do your, your uh, professional sports uh, soapbox because nah. you and I heavily disagree on this. I, I, I do, like, I enjoy hearing your opinion on it because it, it, parts of it evolve as, as time goes on. And because and, I don't really totally disagree, but part of that is just like the framing and discourse of how it's discussed. Uh, but I do think there are ethical ways to. Um, you know, have people pay for sex. It's just generally how that works is seedy and underground, partially because it, it's um, illegal in this country for the most part, except for like a couple of different areas in certain states. Uh, but, you know, I mean, for me, the, the main thing is, you know, before anything, it's about how men you know, actually hold each other accountable for their own actions and and the sort of, um, you know, 
the it's not even an inability, but it's a lack of holding each other accountable for how we look at these things. I mean, this kind of even goes back to our previous episode with the Pepe the Frog stuff, where there's just like men aren't really stepping up to the plate and saying this sort of shit is not acceptable. Right. You know, and 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 I think so. At the end of the day, that transaction, whatever it might be, doesn't have to get out of hand. Except you know a guy feeling like he has the control because he's a man. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it doesn't have to be exploitative, but it ends up becoming that oftentimes because of male ego. You know, another thing this made me think of is if this was a fully legal transaction, if this was a Nevada style regulated, uh, well regulated transaction, there would actually be a lot less exploitation of minors. I mean, because if you could, if you, if you're doing an illegal industry, I mean, if you're selling drugs and somebody steals your drugs, you can't call the cops and go like, they stole my drugs. Like you're fucked. But if you're engaging in a legal transaction, if you're in a liquor store and somebody breaks in and steals your liquor, you can go like, somebody stole my liquor. Here's their description. Da, 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 da. So if you're running the bunny ranch and you're verified that everybody who works there is at least 18 and has been tested for STDs and whatever else and is there of their own volition. Um, if somebody gets out of hand, you can call the cops and they'll come over and arrest them. If you're running a completely secretive operation where the prostitutes and the Johns are equally likely to get arrested, you have no recourse if, if a John gets out of hand. Yeah. And I mean, I think it would be good to get this stuff into the daylight um, simply so police can regulate it. Well, that's not likely, but, you know, just simply because of the, you know, some of the um, opinions that people have and the values people have here. But, I mean, that that's at least a generational way if it does take place. Um, you know, one thing I, I do think we should 100% cover um, is the distribution of the film and kind of how it was created. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know enough about this in detail to like say a whole lot about it but um apparently the way the film was distributed um well that's just like the documentary so th there was a, a, an early documentary um on Centurion, uh story and it was um critically acclaimed and this one now shown on netflix um murder to mercy apparently like takes some of that footage and repurposes it for the purpose of this film and then just adds some stuff to it I guess near the end because of course that film which opens earlier does not include her eventual clemency by the governor of Tennessee the uh, the argument that I don't totally agree with um, is pretty well laid out in a Daily Beast st story called Inside Netflix this deeply irresponsible Santoya Brown documentary and it argues that it's uh, irresponsible that this documentary was made without her consent and argues that it's irresponsible that this documentary repurposed footage from the earlier documentary. Um, people should go read that article, draw their own conclusions. Personally, I don't have any problem with anybody ever making a documentary about someone else without their permission. You know, there have been a million documentaries made about a million people even accusing them of horrible crimes that didn't have that person's permission. And if I want to make a documentary saying Donald Trump is a crook, I don't think I should have to get Donald Trump sign off um, that he's cool with everything I'm saying. <laughs> um, and then the other thing, repurposing footage, every documentary repurposes footage. I don't have a problem with that either. I get, yeah, well, so I didn't see uh, me facing life's Centoria uh, story that was on PBS. So the the way that this could be, you know, an issue for me, not in any legal way, right? But just like it depends on like how the framing is set up. I haven't seen it, so I don't know if there are ways that it is telling the same story with a different framing that makes it where we come to sort of a different conclusion as viewers um, as far as how certain things are, are shaped. Uh, I, I, I don't know. So I, I haven't seen this. I can't really speak to it. Um, but I, I do think that that's interesting. One thing about this documentary overall that, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I feel like it 
you know, is is just it is a flaw, but not like a huge one. It's just like it just does not want to take a side. It's very you can feel its concern about offense to you know people on the left or the right, and I think that that does it a disservice, and in, in moments doesn't allow it to really. Um, have the kind of strength of voice that it could have, but what it it sacrifices in in doing that it it gains in strength by allowing more people to have a voice that maybe wouldn't have it otherwise. Because even at the you know when they're doing her in Tennessee, I forgot exactly what it's called, but like when they're meeting to to, to give a um, recommendation to the governor as far as like whether Centoy should be granted clemency. Yeah, uh, there's a moment where even the victim. Um, people who represent him, I can't remember if it was his family or his friends or whoever those people were, they were able to also speak and be present in this doc. And I thought that that was also important. It, it, I don't know. It, it's it, it's really towing a fine line. And, and I you know regret not having had an opportunity to watch the 2011 documentary along with this one just to kind of understand why there might be some sort of um, criticism that people are bringing up now. Yeah, I, I guess, I feel like there's kind of a very sort of a very modern uh, criticism of it, which is people should have the agency to tell their own stories and no one should tell someone Everybody's not doing Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. Yeah, and the, it's a problem when people tell their own stories. I mean, because... I love Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. I I think it's absolutely fantastic, but at the same time, like I understand that I'm not really getting the full story in the sense that Michael Jordan was probably able to take out stuff if he wanted to. One hundred percent. I feel like, I feel like he. I can tell I you like, for a fact. He, he could, <laughs> if he wanted to take shit out, he saw it before anything. Anything we saw publicly, he saw it before it went up. One hundred percent. What I like about it is I think Michael Jordan is so confident in his own abilities that he still comes off like a dick in places where he probably doesn't even realize he comes off as a dick. But when you get the full picture of Michael Jordan, it's like he's just obviously the best. He is the best. See, one quick thing. I don't want to go on this too long, but the thing is part of that documentary is funny because it's a bunch of people framing things about Michael Jordan when, in fact, oftentimes – it's just how black people talk, and it's just how black people are like, like competitive and ridiculous with each other. But it's not like it, in, in in sports annals, it's framed like the most competitive guy of all time. And in fact, like that's just my uncle playing dominoes. Oh, He's not yeah. gonna stop playing until he wins one. And I love him for that. I love him for the way he would find some fake slight to like hype himself up to get mad to play better. But there's some. The one thing that really bothered me is a uh, spoiler alert for episode eight, I believe. When he just laughs at Gary Payton. That was the most beautiful thing. Oh, oh so <laughs> I thought good. that was so disrespectful of Gary Payton, who did a great job covering it. Was, it was beautiful. I love it. <laughs> oh, I loved it so much. Oh, all right. We, 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 yeah, I mean, but, we'll come back to that later. But yeah, but yeah. We'll, maybe side- we'll come back to another episode. Okay. It's a sidebar. and uh, But the, the overall point of what we're getting at is how much control should the subject of a documentary have over a documentary? I say um, none. I mean, I think the answer is you should make sure that the subject of the documentary has every response. I'm sorry. The subject of the documentary should have every opportunity to respond to every criticism made of them in the documentary, but they shouldn't have final cut over the documentary. But that's never – the thing is, in this era, that's not happening anymore. For the if, you, if you're rich and powerful, that's not happening anymore. But if you're not that, then that's not going to be the case. I mean, we're forgetting what a documentary is because for people to say, right, oh my right, gosh, right. this is an unauthorized documentary, if it's an authorized documentary, it's not a documentary. There's yeah, no such see, thing but, as, an, as a true authorized but, documentary. See, you're speaking like a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like, we're in a different space now. Yeah, that, that's, that's what's so crazy about it. That's true, though. Like, a documentary in the sense is like writing an essay or something. Yeah. Like, you... It's, now, it'd be one thing if they were to make a film based off her story with, like, actors and stuff like that. That's a whole different thing in itself. 
Um, but with a documentary, yeah. nah, you you because because it, like like y'all saying like shit. If most people, if you got consent for most people to make a documentary, they're gonna be like, so what you gonna put in it? Like, they gonna be like, but that, oh. that, that's that's the Cause, problem because they so don't like, want themselves to be painted in that type of light, you know, in any type of light. Like we see that in um the Tiger King documentary, right? Oh Where, yeah. <laughs> You know, I haven't even watched it yet, but what if Joe Exotic had Final Cut over the Tiger King documentary? Man, what the fuck would that be? Like, what <laughs> would... <laughs> but, but, but that's the problem. <laughs> like, we're never gonna get documentaries from any document we get going forward from about a celebrity is gonna be basically an autobiography because they have control over the footage in most cases, and that was a problem with. Well, I said problem. That, that, that's the thing I had to keep in mind with the Last Dance is yeah. That footage was shared, but it could only be shared like that 98 footage from that season because it was signed off by Jordan's business partners and Jordan himself. If they didn't sign off on it, you can't do it because they wouldn't have allowed it to be signed off because it's partially owned by those people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean... It's a dilemma in the sense of do we want to watch 10 hours of footage about Michael Jordan and this amazing story, but it's not really a dilemma in terms of is this journalistically the best way to go. It's clearly not. It's a, it's a compromise. I mean, uh, it's we, a compromise that we made because we wanted to see all, all this great footage. Um, I, I we, hope we get to talk about it, uh, but the thing is the main thing it doesn't cover is just like stuff in his marriage. Almost everything else you'd want to see is present and as a sports fan i don't really care too much about what happened with what he and his wife uh his first wife yeah i understand that and that's actually journalistically that's the only thing i ever really check with subjects on um if i am writing something that i think might embarrass their family or bring their family into it in an unnecessary way that's pretty much the only thing i'm going to be sensitive around um you know if if I was doing my, well, it wouldn't happen with Donald Trump because part of the kleptocracy is his family. But if I was doing, um, <laughs> if I was doing a documentary about somebody accused of some other wrongdoing, um, and it might embarrass their spouse who had nothing to do with it, that's a thing where I might check with them. Right. Um, yeah. But other than that, I mean, no one gets. No one gets final cut on their own on a, on a story made about them by a third party. Like that's that's not a legitimate criticism in my mind. And I know there's like racial and gender dynamics in it where they're like, this is a these are white men telling a young black woman's story. Document uh, documentarians are allowed to make documentaries about whatever they want under the First Amendment, and I don't think they should be shamed out of doing that. I think every every story is fair game as well as you're t- as long as you're telling it well and fairly. I agree. Yep. Yeah. Keith, any closing thoughts is, is uh we wrap up uh another somber episode. <laughs> Man, look, I I had fun, so I don't know about everybody else, you know. I just like <laughs> Ain't no damn if I was damn near crying the whole time, you nah, asshole. Man, this is cool. Find some happy shit. I mean This is good. I'm got... glad we talked about it. I learned some stuff about, you know, all kind of things, and yeah, I got to re-examine, you know, male culture and blah blah blah. But look, man, so you learned you, you learned your something, so that was good then. But um, <laughs> you gonna find me some happy shit during this goddamn pandemic. Man, I'm like, man. <laughs> we I'm were gonna, gonna do a cartoon, and we did this. Right. <laughs> we're gonna do solar opposites, and I, you know, y'all didn't have time to watch all of them episodes. But anyway. Yeah. So I ain't got nothing, but um, thank you all for rocking with us today. I was about to say this evening because we record at night, but um, no, please follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, um, Low Key Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram. And um, that's it. That's it for us tonight. I mean, whenever you hear us, I keep saying tonight shit, but that's hey, it for hey, us. Look, I'm boycotting sad stuff. We're doing happy shit next time. At least something that ain't like in the vein of this is going to make you depressed. We're going to find you know something what? else. I've spent the entire quarantine with my wife in the Northeast in her hometown outside Boston. And every single day 
she goes, oh, it's going to be 70 tomorrow, and every single day it's 43, and that's what this podcast is like. We're but like, it's May. Next what week is funny. It's, it's really 43 in May? <laughs> We're like, next week is going to be a lighthearted, fun conversation, and then the next <laughs> week is like, what's the worst thing we can come up with? <laughs> right. Look, look, oh. We got that in the bag. But anyway, we out. <laughs> I'll see y'all the next week. Peace.